Sustainable Brands presents Creating Shared Value and Measuring Impact in the Supply Chain Featuring Woodrow Keown, Director of Global Sustainability at Procter & Gamble Ellen Jakowski, Global Programs Manager, Sustainability and Social Innovation at Hewlett-Packard Michael Jordan, Executive Vice President of Sustainability Strategy at Jones Lang LaSalle and Todd Stark, Chief Operating Officer at Fairtrade USA. Recorded September 27, 2012, at the New Metrics of Sustainable Business Conference at the Wharton School in Philadelphia. Uh, so, on this panel, we have Procter and Gamble and Hewlett uh, uh, Packard and yeah, uh, Fairtrade USA, as well as Jones Lang LaSalle. Um, so, Michael Jordan. The Michael Jordan, not that other guy. Uh, you know. I have been called the Michael Jordan sustainability. Fantastic, because you know the hardest thing about being number one is staying number one. I've been called the Kevin Bacon of Impact. So, uh, uh, and so one of the things we'll probably talk about is the Empire State Building in New York. So if you go to, if you type in your browser, Empire State Building and Sustainability, you'll see that they changed out 8,700 radiators and 8,700 windows to save a couple million bucks a year. Um, and then Woodrow is here from Procter & Gamble. And uh, so Procter & Gamble, which is also a highly rated uh, hip store company, uh, is going to talk about uh, supply chain sustainability, which um, they're doing in uh, partnership and collaboration based on the work that Walmart and its supply chain sustainability scorecard has done. Uh, and of course, Hewlett Packard, always a uh, foundation of innovation from having started in a garage to now leading the um, thoughts and uh, sensors around sustainability. And then Fairtrade USA, uh, uh, Paul Rice, uh, uh, the CEO, was a Ashoka fellow. So for those of you who know social entrepreneurship, Ashoka is a community of social entrepreneurs worldwide who can be great uh, social entrepreneur partners for your business. Um, and Fairtrade USA, let me touch on that today. All right, Michael, over to you. Okay. Here's the Thanks. assist. All right. Um, that is great. Thanks for the introduction. So uh, I'm Michael Jordan. I'm actually not going to talk at all about the Empire State Building, but uh, I'm happy to, now that your curiosity has peaked, uh, talk about that later during the, the reception, if you like. Um, so this is a pretty cool project. Uh, so Jones Lang LaSalle uh, is a, a global real estate services company, financial services company. Uh, we have been in uh, the energy and sustainability industry as a services company for uh, a number of years now. You can't manage buildings without managing the building systems that consume energy. So our, our clients, for example, are very interested in how they uh, reduce that consumption and do other, other good things in their, in their facilities and their, their built environment, all the buildings where the employees sit every day and go to work. Um, I have the uh, pleasure of being one of the, the leaders of our services in that area. Um, and one of the things that we've been working on uh, in collaboration with, with other companies is uh, supply chain sustainability. And that's what this panel is going to talk about today, is creating uh, shared value uh, and uh, data uh, through uh, and sustainability progress in, in supply chains. So I think there's a couple of panels on on sustainability and supply chains, and we're going to talk about uh, the great work that uh, these companies have been doing. Uh, just to kind of specifically introduce the, um, the panelists uh, for Procter & Gamble, uh, Woody's going to go first. He's the Global Purchases Director for uh, the, S the Sustainable Supply Chain Program. He's going to talk about some learnings from uh, how P&G has launched their Supplier Sustainability Scorecard and whatever else uh, comes to mind. 
Um, we've got a, a couple, we've got a couple slides on, on that. We're trying to keep the slides a little bit raw and to, the, to a minimum to illustrate some of the concepts here and have some dialogue. Uh, Todd Starks is the CEO, COO of Fairtrade USA and the president of Good World Solutions. And he's got a really fantastic product using levels. I won't steal your thunder, Todd. Steal. Uh, steal. <laughs> it's transparent. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so he's going to talk about some, some work they're doing in measuring uh, uh, workers and their satisfaction and other uh, functions in uh, supply chains. And Ellen Zukowski from HP. She owns the Environmental Sustainability Global Programs and works with teams uh, worldwide to, to drive environmental sustainability in supply chains, improve uh, progress there. So uh, each of the panelists is going to do um, a little bit of an overview of their program. They have a couple slides. And then uh, we'll open it up for some facilitated Q&A from you all. And I've got a couple of questions. Uh, and we'll, we'll just kind of go from there. And who's my timekeeper? Is that the timer? OK. So you're going to keep us on track? All right, great. Um, I think this is the clicker. I think I missed orientation on the, uh, the slide decks. Um, I'm going to turn it over to you, Woody, to, to get us started on, on your program. OK. Thank yeah. you, Michael. Great. Um, several years ago, uh, our uh, chairman and CEO uh, committed our company to be a leader in the area of sustainability. Uh, and in support of that uh, commitment, uh, we basically de uh, developed a set of goals, like most of uh, what I've heard here today, to, uh, to get us there. Uh, and uh, about a year and a half or so ago, we declared a long-term vision uh, in several particular areas. Uh, one of the key things that we, we, we did as we went through this is that we've learned our way through sustainability is that we uh, have been a pioneer in the area of life cycle assessments for quite some time, dating way, way back. Uh, and uh, one of the things we've learned, uh, we did some uh, life cycle assessments in uh, a couple of our uh, really big uh, global business units, and a couple of key things jumped out at her. One was that uh, one of the key areas that we needed to focus on as a company was energy, because when you think of the products, of household products for cleaning, etc., cetera, uh, one of the key areas that uh, when we looked at our life cycle assessment, the energy required to heat the water, uh, that, w that is necessary to wash clothes and do cleaning and so on and so forth was really a very significant uh, driver from our sustainability standpoint. So we felt like we needed to uh, to focus in on that. As a result of that, uh, you will see uh, you have seen products like uh, cold water cleaning tide that has been put into the marketplace to basically take energy levels down. We still have some work to do to convince consumers that uh, this uh, cleaning product really cleans as good as it will in cold water as well as hot water uh, used to be uh, for used to be used for, for cleaning. So we still have some work to do there. But we also have done things like reduce package sizes and stuff like that. But the second thing that popped out in that uh, life cycle assessment was the next big area of, of uh, focus for us was that our supply chain was a major, major factor because of energy consumption to get our product, to make the materials that are necessary, and to move and, and make our products and so forth. So we decided because of that that we needed to get to work on our supply chain uh, before you know it was too late. We wanted to get ahead of the game. And as a result, we put in a uh, program basically to kind of help us really kind of get grounded in terms of what was going on where we were, and then from there we would start our, our improvement work. So we designed a scorecard, what we call a supply chain environmental sustainability scorecard. 
a couple of things here. One is that the key thing here is we use and brought in our external business partners, about 20 of our external business partners. Jones Lang LaSalle was one of those external business partners to help us develop this tool. Not a tool for P&G, but a tool that we could use with our external business partners because we know that they are serving other companies as well. And so what we wanted to do, we knew we couldn't do this alone, so collaboration was very key to what we wanted to do. The second thing we wanted to do basically was to ensure, because we work across so many different industries, just about any industry you can think of, we wanted to be sure that the tool was flexible enough to be able to be used across these different industries uh, and, and, and effectively applied uh, across and be fair to everybody in which uh, that we're going to be using it. The third thing is that we wanted to be flexible and, and user-friendly. So th those were the key design principles that we used uh, to develop our scorecard with a lot, a lot of support from uh, our external business partners who we formed into a, a supplier sustainability board. Some people will call it an advisory council. Uh, this is an example of the scorecard. I'm not going to try to demonstrate it or anything like that. I think the key thing here is that uh, this is what our product is. Uh, we could go through a lot, kind of a lot of time trying to demonstrate it, but that's not the purpose of this. The key here is to show you that we have targeted on eight, uh, eight or nine key, what we call core measures that we use. It provides the flexibility for our external business partners to report on P&G specific products. So some companies, about 10% of them, can report specifically on what they're doing specifically in, in regards to P&G products. Others have the capability to report on a site level that might be making P&G products. And then the third level that they have the ability to report on would be at the corporate level. So they have the flexibility to do that. And we've been collecting data. We launched this in 2010. Uh, we've been getting uh, great results in. And uh, just last year, last spring, we deployed an uh, analytical tool that we made available to people to, to use it call. So Todd, that's what I wanted, Michael, that's what I wanted to share to kick us off. Great. Thanks, Woody. Okay, so we'll do questions uh, and discussion uh, at the end. I, see, I can't actually remember if Todd was next or if Ellen was next, but... <laughs> I'll click the button. I'll click the button. That's my slide, so I'll you're on. Hi, everybody. Can you hear me? I'm realizing we've reached that part of the afternoon where the body's resources are being used more for digestion than cognition. So I'm going to try to talk like a game show host in the vain attempt maybe to keep everybody awake. Okay, so um, I uh, kind of have two jobs. I'm the chief operating officer at Fairtrade USA, and many of you may know that from Fairtrade products, Fairtrade coffee and the like. And I'm also the head of a real small company we have called uh, Good World Solutions, which is a, basically an IT company that is trying to find ways to measure um, worker satisfaction in the developing world uh, on the ground. And uh, this seemed like a really interesting uh, time to talk about this topic because at our work in fair trade, we obviously spend a lot of time talking about metrics and, you know, how do you, I mean, we've, we've talked about this all morning, right? How, how do you really figure out how, how you're doing? And, you know, it's, there are some things that are easy to measure if they're very scientific, but when you talk about the human element of the supply chain, and particularly the human element of the supply chain in the developing world, you're, you, it becomes very hard to come up with measures that are, you know, very quantifiable. And we're trying to work on this in Fairtrade USA, but, you know, we struggle with it. So anyway, we have this other small company called Good World Solutions. And we're trying some, some experiments to learn what we can do. And to the point that came up earlier about... Um, you know, you can't solve the whole world's problems. Can we do some little things? Well, frankly, we're just we're doing some little things. We're trying some things to see what we can learn in the hope that someday we can, we can scale it up. So here's kind of what it looks like. To the right. To the right. 
There we go. So Good World Solutions is really a company about using um, technologically and geographically appropriate technology at origin to try to understand what's going on. Now in Fairtrade USA, we work in about 70 countries around the world. Um, in Good World Solutions, we're just starting with a few countries, but we're starting with mobile phone technology because there are mobile phones all over the world now. And for those of you who travel extensively around the world, you know that at least 2G technology is very common. People have phones everywhere you go. So uh, what we're trying to do is take that spread of mobile phone technology and put it in using um, survey tools that we customize in conjunction with uh, companies, brands, factories, and other people. I'll, I'll just keep going like this because I'm going to make it too easy. It just screws up everything. Um, the, we're using these surveys via mobile phone technology to try to get at some of the issues that are driving uh, questions about how are my workers doing. So what we did is we started working with brands, some big and some small, to understand things about uh, factory worker conditions, uh, job satisfaction, uh, tracking improvements in livelihoods, etc. And when we got started with this, we said, okay, well, what, what are we going to do? How are we going to do this? So uh, we said, well, first we've got to understand what are, the, what are the goals of businesses that may want to understand what's going on in their supply chain with workers in the developing world. So we had to understand what are the business metrics that are going to be important. And these are just a few of them, um, but again, these are certainly very different than um, um, measures that around things like you know uh, carbon emissions and things like that. But we heard from brands, for example, they'd say, you know, we produce a lot of product in India, and we work very hard to have a to to um, train our workforce and to keep them on staff, but. Because we work in the fashion industry, there'll be peaks and valleys. And so we'll have, say, 40% of our workforce that, um, you know, is gone for part of the year because maybe we're in, we're in India and they come from, say, Sri Lanka to work in our factory and then they're gone. But you know what? They were good workers and we, we want to get them back and they don't come back. We don't know why they don't come back. Well, the reason they don't know why they come back is it's a big factory. There are a lot of factories. They don't have any way of quantifying why don't you come back next season so that you can work with us again. So we started working on surveys around the answers to those kinds of questions. Um, so I'm just going to show you real quick a couple slides here about a couple of companies that we've done work with and some of the, the things that we tried to figure out. Eileen Fisher, which I'm sure most of you know of, is one of the companies that we do work with. And um, Eileen Fisher was interested in knowing about working conditions in some of their factory hoods, some of their factories and, and, and the livelihoods of some of their workers. And so the first thing we did is we we fielded a survey that was based on the Grameen Progress Out of Poverty Index, which some of you are probably familiar with, developed by the Grameen Foundation. And it's a, it's a simple survey that tries to get at, you know, kind of where are you in your life uh, in terms of your financial uh, well-being. And it's designed to be calibrated across 44 countries in the world. And it's a great survey that we started with with a number of companies because it's not too intimate. It doesn't penetrate too deeply into an individual worker's world. It makes them comfortable with the idea of I'm getting asked these questions. Um, the way it works is really pretty simple. Now, obviously, I have a, this is a little more, this is a smartphone, but in most of the developing world, we're talking about the 2G phones. But what happens is we work in, in collaboration with all the parties involved, and we, work, we decide what questions we're going to ask on a survey. And everybody gets to participate, right, because this isn't, we're not a watchdog group, right? We're not, trying to, we're not trying to bust people. We're trying to make lives better. So we'll decide what are the questions we're going to ask. It'll generally be a short survey, about three minutes or so. 
workers will place a missed call so that they don't have to pay for the call. The system then calls them back immediately and asks them a very short survey in native language. In India right now, for example, we're doing it in eight languages. Obviously, that's not nearly the number of languages of India, but it covers the, the work we're doing now, and we're doing several other languages around the world as well. They answer real quick survey of questions, and then that data gets aggregated and analyzed, and then we can go back to the brands as well as the factories and others and say, hey, you wanted to know kind of you know, how things are going. It's not perfect data, but it's a, it's a directional indicator of how are things going with your workers, do they feel satisfied, why don't they feel satisfied, et cetera. The idea being not only improving the livelihoods of the workers, but trying to come up with this SROI in a way that makes sense for both the brands at the so-called US level or European level and the workers at the developing world level. So we, uh, we did another survey that was done in the community to try to uh, find out more about retention. Uh, we did some ana analysis around that. And again, the analysis is tailored to whatever the uh, you know, client is looking for. Uh, we did some with uh, Fair Trade USA, which is our, our, our other company, to try to understand in uh, Brazil some things about uh, soil management practices and other ecological practices, uh, as well as uh, uh, agrochemical use. And uh, then we, we basically built a template for engagement. So brands would come to us and we say, they say, well, this is kind of cool, but how do we get started? And so we basically put together a 10-step program. Um, and then, as I said, we involve everybody in the process. You don't leave anybody out because uh, when we started doing this, I remember going to one factory in particular and the owner of the factory said to me, so basically you're going to tell me all the things that my workers don't like about me and then you're going to report that back to me? That's not very helpful to me. I said, no, that's not what we're going to do. We're going to decide on what things, are there things that you want to know about the workforce that's difficult to find out when you got, you know, uh, nine factories with an average of 1,100 workers in them. And she said, uh, yeah, I'd like to know this, this, and this. It's like, okay, well, the brands you service would also like to know this, this, and this. So we're going to put it together in a survey. We'll get the results. We'll talk about them, and then we'll directionally see where we go with the next level of surveys. So it's really all about building transparency in the supply chain down to the point of the people that actually make stuff, right? Right now, we're doing work in uh, several sectors, uh, the agriculture sector, we're doing work in the uh, apparel sector, we're doing work in the artisan sector. Uh, we're also just started work in the electronics sector. Um, we are in the midst of putting deals together in a number of other sectors right now, beverages, toys, um, electronics, other electronics companies, entertainment, and sporting goods. And these are the countries in which we've started work right now. It's still early days. We've only been doing this about 18 months. So what we, wouldn't, what we don't know would fill the entire campus of the University of Pennsylvania. But we've learned enough to be able to start to, to give folks an idea, give brands an idea, give factories an idea about what they can do to systemically and sustainably improve the lives of their workers by measuring things that are important to everyone and then using those as a benchmark off which we'll, we build further uh, analytics. And we built a great proprietary front end so that then the client can go in and customize it any way they want to. So that's what we're doing. Thanks. Can you guys hear me? So um, I'm part of HP's corporate sustainability team, and I'm also now in charge of our global citizenship report. Has anybody here read HP's global citizenship report? A piece of it? 
Nice. A lot of you. Well, it's huge. If anyone's looked at it, it's about 200 pages. It's one of the biggest around. And there are plenty of metrics, plenty of data, lots of charts, tables, whatever you want. There's a ton of it in there. Um, and that's a challenge. So as the new owner of the report, and I look at this thing and think, you know, do we need all of this? What if this is really important? Who actually is sitting down and reading all 200 pages? Are people just coming in looking for a couple key metrics? Um, what, from a business point of view, are we actually using to make decisions? So uh, when we step back and think about the supply chain section, the supply chain at HP is about $60 billion. We have about 1,000 production suppliers and tens of thousands of non-production suppliers. And the data and the reporting around that area in particular is uh, definitely complex. So, um, so anyway, so we're on a journey, right? We're on a journey of trying to figure out what's important, what do we measure. We've been reporting for over 10 years, uh, and what we've reported continues to change and evolve. So some of the milestones of our supply chain program. We began uh, the SCR program in 2000, and we were one of the first companies to actually set foot on the ground and do an audit. Uh, our first supplier audit was in 2004. That's when we started to begin to collect um, some really meaningful data. Uh, in 2006, we started our capability building program. That's where we work with our suppliers' management teams and their employees to actually train and educate them on topics to help um, reduce the non-conformances that we found in our audits. And that's an interesting um, journey that we've been on. I'll show you a case study in a minute about um, how we've been able to use that data over the last couple of years and look at it in a new way uh, to understand, are we getting ROI from this? Is this actually doing anything that benefits our suppliers, HP as a company, and our supply chain overall? Um, and then this past year, in 2011, we did our first HP non-production supplier audit. So we're continuing to gather more data. I'm hoping this report doesn't become 250 pages this year. Um, but with that, with the step now into non-production supplier audits, we have an even deeper view of our supply chain and more challenges to figure out, you know, where's the right place for us to be reporting? What's the right level of data? So our approach um, is four phases. So it begins with the introduction. Uh, and that's where we work with our suppliers to figure out uh, and ensure that all of our SCR requirements are built into our contracts with them. They have to sign up. Then we, get, we begin um, with the assessment process. That's where they go through their own self-assessment, and we check that, ask lots of questions about it. Then the third phase is validation. That's where we actually go into uh, the supplier on the ground and um, do on-site audits, talk about corrective actions, and then do follow-up audits whenever we find any non-conformances. And then finally, it's that capability building. And this is you know, a relatively new space where we've been working, uh, again, since 2006 with our suppliers to, to work on education and training programs. As you can see from the data here, we've collected about uh, 760 audits since we started this program. Again, plenty of things to think about, lots of data there. And the, the bottom blue line is the capability building. So again, we're, just, we're continuing to grow that program. We're continuing to learn more about what is the best, most effective areas of capability building and how can we get um, the most ROI for all of those efforts. I should also mention, by the way, um, our suppliers are in every single continent. Uh, in the world, and aside from the Arctic, of course, and uh, and that that really runs across lots of cultures. 
So as we're designing a program that might be suitable for uh, a company in Asia, it might not translate well to other companies in other parts of the world, just given the cultural differences. So again, given the scope and scale, we really need to tailor our solutions, tailor what we're looking at and how we think about this. So, so here's one case study. Um, this is the HER project. This is a group we've partnered with BSR um, on this project. It's Health Enables Return. Uh, the focus point of this uh, started in Mexico and then we expanded it to China. And this is where um, we're working with our suppliers to address general and reproductive health needs of women. What we found, you know, back to some of the comments that you all were making around absenteeism and other issues with employees that are suppliers, uh, many women in, in Mexico and China where we've been running this program are showing up uh, or not showing up for work based on health issues. And these are these are things that could be easily solved with education um, if we were able to educate some of the workers around hygiene issues that could solve some of their, their problems, um, if we could teach them about some of the medicine that's available, about STDs, um, all sorts of different things, uh, and, and open that dialogue, make sure that they're not embarrassed to come to work and, and explain you know, why they can't show up to work and get the help that they need. Um, this is one of the programs that's been really uh, successful. So if you look at the chart, on the left, that's the initial audit where we found non-conformances uh, with our suppliers. The ones where we were running this HER program, um, that, that's the blue line. So when we went back to check on the non-conformances, were they solved? Uh, those that participated in this program, we saw a 50% decrease in non-conformances. And then those who didn't, the suppliers that didn't, it was about 8% decrease. So even though we're putting pressure on the supplier, we're trying to influence them. Without this capability building program, we're not getting the results dramatically as we would like to see. So, um, you know, this again, this last year in 2011, this is the first time we put all the data together since we've been collecting it uh, since 2007. And we're able to really see the impact, the measurable impact to the supplier, their bottom line, to HP, our bottom line, and then obviously, um, in terms of our supplier standards, we're able to make much more progress. So instead of having to um, retract from that supplier, find another one, um, to replace them, this is obviously a much more meaningful, productive solution. And the second case study is uh, the worker management um, communications project. This is where we're helping workers better understand their labor rights and how to file grievances. So in cases where workers are unhappy, there's been a lot of that in the news, of course, lately, um, this is where we've gone in with a Chinese NGO in China to educate workers around um, how, how to file a grievance, what's the proper way to do that without feeling that you're at risk of being fired you know, on the spot. And again, we're seeing similar results. So where we've run this program with those suppliers, that's the blue line, they've seen about a 30% decrease in the non-conformances versus suppliers where we haven't run this program, and it's about a 15% decrease. So again, you know, lots of data, lots of metrics, open up that 200-page report um, if you'd like to see more. But again, you know, in this past year, this is just a new way, a fresh way that we've been able to start collecting data since 2007 and, and look at the meaningful impact, um, be able to make better decisions around where do we put our efforts, which programs are really making a difference, not just at a standards level, you know, coming up with more standards um, for our suppliers, but really solving the problems. 
Uh, we do some some questions uh, for uh, the next 15 minutes or so. Um, maybe going back to uh, you first, Woody, but but the, all the panelists on the the question of uh, of the value of the the data that you're bringing back, and have you felt uh, the need? Do you feel like the um, investor community or other executive leadership? Uh, that the data that you're bringing back on, on say, environmental or energy and climate or and labor uh, practices, is it valuable on its face, or have you felt uh, the need, or have you translated some of those metrics to uh, to dollars or other other cost programs? How how is the story played out um, when you are answering kind of the the so what about the data you're bringing back? Well, from our standpoint, we have. Uh Michael, we have, um, we're still kind of, you know, kind of cleaning up our database and getting it stabilized so that we'll have a, a real good clean uh, base of data from which to work and grow. So we haven't attempted to go and try to quantify and put a dollar figure on it. We've, we've been clear with our management in terms of how we're going to progress this program. One of the key uh, aspects of what we were, what we're looking to do here is to really drive um, um, sustainable innovation. Uh, in terms of how our products are manufactured, in terms of our packaging manufacturing, how they are shipped, the whole whole system. We're looking at the end-to-end -end in terms of what we call 360 innovation. Uh, one of the things that, that, that comes up a lot around, you know, what's the value of sustainability? And, and that's a question we're starting to address a lot more. In support of that, uh, we, we know we've been at this for quite some time in our internal operations. And uh, in April, we reported in a, a webinar, an article that we published that we, we've uh, accumulated and have achieved uh, over a billion dollars in savings uh, from our operations in these areas over the last uh, 10 years. So that leads us to believe that by targeting these areas that you saw on the scorecard here, that there are some opportunities for savings out there in these particular areas. But more importantly, the dialogue and, 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 and collaboration that we go through in terms of trying to generate these ideas on a total system basis, we're starting to see a lot of innovation ideas that are coming in and working their way into our products, packaging, and services. Either of you want to add on uh, kind of how the, the data that you're seeing on the labor uh, workforce side translates into other types of value, or has it been just valuable on, it, on its face for investors or others? Yeah, I mean, the investor question is, um, I would say, kind of a segmented one. Uh, what we see, especially when we sit down with investor relations, and of course my agenda is you know, with the concept of integrated reporting, oh, let's, you know, let's put all this together, let's start, you know, looking down this path, let's start moving in this way. And, um, you know, and the response continues to come back that investors aren't, you know, fully there yet. You know, it's 10%, it's less, it's just, you know, a small handful of specialists who are really interested in that type of data. So I think it goes back to some of the earlier discussions that we were having around you know, how do you turn this into ROI? In our guts, everyone knows this is the right thing to be doing, but at a business level, you still need to make sure that you're working, um, you know, towards the, the broader corporate goals. So, um, so I think kind of similar, you know, to the capability building graphs that I was just showing. We started those programs not really knowing how successful they would be. Again, when you're working across cultures, and you're doing things like talking to groups of female employees in a culture where they're not used to talking about things like, uh, you know, sexually transmitted diseases or menstrual cycles or things, you know, incredibly personal. But by, by opening up those discussions, 
you can have incredible results, financial results, serious business results. So, um, so I would say, you know, the, the perspective that we've taken is, especially as we're down this journey and you know, we're all just trying to figure it out, what's the right thing, what's going to be successful, let's try it. Let's look at the numbers. Let's step back once we have enough data to see is this the right direction. If it's the right direction, let's keep going, reinvest more. If it's not the right direction, we're not seeing the results that we want, let's drop it and move on. And, uh, you know, we've had plenty that are successful, plenty that aren't. And we just kind of keep moving and adjusting based on where we see success. To a large degree, the measurements that you're deploying in your companies are driving some transparency in your, in your supply chain, right? So it gives you a little bit better visibility on what's happening among your suppliers. Uh, has that uh, been difficult for suppliers to, to deal with? Does that cause any friction for suppliers to kind of open up a little bit more, pull back the curtain on their, on their practices? Any comments on you know, the change management aspects of working with suppliers? Or is anything you're doing making them nervous? Uh, yeah, I think a lot of this makes people nervous. It's not business as usual, and anything that isn't business as usual makes people nervous. Um, in our particular work, we've started to work with uh, with a uh, an electro electronics component manufacturer in China, uh, not related to you, Alan. Um, and when they originally the, the brand originally asked us to start work with a particular supplier in China that was two steps removed from the brand. And basically the company, this uh, particular factory in China just stonewalled us. They said, hell no, we're not, we're not doing this. There's no way we're going to give you this kind of transparency into the supply chain. But thanks for stopping by. <laughs> so, you know, so then it's, 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 it becomes a kind of a, you know, you go back and forth. It's a catch ball. So then we go back to the brand and we say, hey, you know, they, they don't want to play ball. And again, this isn't a watchdog activity. This is about making real improvements. So we don't want to go where we're not wanting. So then they said, well, you know what? Probably part of the problem here is you're two steps removed from us as a company. So let's deal with one of our larger suppliers still in China, but they're one step removed from us. They have a, they have a closer appreciation for what we're trying to do, and that's who we're working with. Now, that doesn't, frankly, it raises a red flag for me because it says, well, that just says the farther you get away, the, the further down the supply chain you get, the more likely you are to find all kinds of terrible stuff going on. Uh, so it's, it's a journey, uh, kind of to Alan's point. It's, it's a journey. We've got to take it a piece at a time, uh, see if we're on the right path, make some improvements, publicize those improvements, and hopefully get other people to want to uh, participate. Uh, from our standpoint, there are a couple of issues I would say that have been challenges for us. Uh, first, um, you know, there's a lot of concern about how we would use the data. I would say in terms of the information that's coming in, that's been coming in from the number of suppliers we brought, external business partners, it's been good. Uh, and, and people have been, I think, generally open and, and have shared information. We still, we're still cleaning it up. But one of the recurring questions we get is, you know, how are you going to use this information? They're going to use it as a club against me, and what PNG thinking, and how is it going to affect me, and so forth. The, the, the second issue we get into is because of this uh, supplier sustainability board we put together, which is, represents about uh, probably about 20 of our top suppliers uh, across all kind of industries, including advertising agencies and so on and so forth, we do have competitors in the room. You know, So we had some sub-teams that were set up, and one of the sub-teams that we set up because we wanted to try to drive reapplication 
was uh, a benchmarking so that we could share ideas across the group and across industries and so forth. And that team has had the most struggles of all sub-teams in terms of trying to drive it work because people are concerned about uh, sharing information. They're afraid that uh, it might uh, it might go some confidential information that, uh, you know, to their competitor. So we are still trying to figure out how to crack that. We have had, uh, we have made progress in terms of getting some of our external business partners to start sharing more. Last year in our um, session, I think we had one or two company external business partners to start sharing their best practices and what they've learned. Uh, we have our meeting coming up next week, and uh, I think we'll have about uh, at least two and probably three suppliers. So they're starting to open up a lot more. Understand, I think they're starting to get comfortable in terms of how we're going to be managing and use, using information and understanding that this is more about a collaboration and dialogue and working together versus using it as a, as a tool to, to, to be used against them. And, and I would just echo that. I mean, obviously, um, our suppliers want our business. We need our suppliers. So there's a huge dependency there, and if we can't figure out how to collaborate meaningfully um, and kind of solve each other's issues together, then then no one's really winning. So I, I would echo your point. Okay, we're starting to see some hands in the audience. I don't know if we passed out mics, or so if you don't have a mic, uh, or if there's one coming too closely, can we start uh, back here with the gentleman in the middle, and then maybe okay. Uh, um, this is a question for Todd mostly. Um, it seems like a very cool technology, first of all, and a, a really interesting use of tech. Is this on? Yes. Uh, and a really interesting use of technology. And I'm curious, have you seen any uh, labor mobility that maybe wasn't there before? And by that I mean, are the best workers gravitating towards the best employers as a product of this? Um, is it kind of at a scale where you start to see that kind of migration? Is it sort of like a glass door but for developing market uh, workers? Um, thanks. Uh, the direct answer to the question is, I don't know. It's too early. Yeah. I really hope so. Um, there are a lot of really great brands uh, that are working with us. Um, I know Bart had mentioned, I don't know if Bart's still here, but he mentioned Patagonia this morning. That's one of the brands that uh, that we're working with, and um, uh, you know, they they really want companies like Patagonia, uh, Marks and Spencer in, in the UK is another brand we're starting to work with. They they really want to be able to publicize uh, the good work that comes out of this, and then be able to share those results because it's in their best interest to do so, both financially as in terms of as well as in a CSR agenda that may be less quantitative. But I, it's too early to know to be able to any kind of uh, statistical significance against that yet. We have somebody with a mic. Oh, we got one over here. Okay. okay. Good afternoon. Jackie Jenkins from the Wharton Small Business Development Center. I recognize that the first phase is actually sharing of information, but how active are you with your suppliers as far as implementing solutions? And do any of those solutions involve collaboration among suppliers and best practice sharing within the industry? Yeah, so, um, you know, I mentioned the capability building that really is working with our suppliers, training their employees, and I think we've trained something like 250,000 employees across some of our suppliers to date. Um, so, you know, once we do get to that first phase of seeing the information and recognizing where there are issues, that's, that's where we figure out, you know, who should we be partnering with. For most of our capability building programs, we partner with NGOs and 
Um, some consortiums, like the EICC, is obviously very active in this space as well with us. Um, so BSR, at the Worker uh, Management Communication Project, was with a, a Chinese NGO. So um, yes, we're working with all sorts of different groups, looking for answers wherever we can find them. And, uh, and then as soon as we see success, so for example, with the HER project, we started in Mexico, and it was working well. We saw um, really good results. We expanded it to China. So um, yep, we're sharing and learning all along the way. Uh, from our standpoint, that's the, the next phase for us. Uh, we'll find out where we are next week. We have our face-to-face um, uh, -face supplier sustainability board meeting next week, and our process is designed to really try to move to that phase. We've set some very specific questions that we're going to be working in a breakout, and it's aimed at right at that in terms of where, where, what do we need to be focusing on or what are you willing to focus on? Where can we drive value not only for us but also for you? So we'll have a much better read on that after, after our session next week. Great question. Hi, uh, Dennis Wilson from Sangamon Corporation. Uh, first question is for Woody, and then uh, Ellen, the second question is kind of uh, related to, to HP. But um, how successful have you been at actually getting the questionnaires back? Uh, that's been, I know for a lot of companies, that's a pretty significant struggle. And I guess related to both of you, uh, have there been consequences? Have the businesses actually, uh, you know, maybe stopped using a supplier or, um, you know, drawn back from using someone so much because maybe they haven't responded to a questionnaire or they, uh, they're not responding in the way you'd like them to. Thank you. Um, our success rate, for the, for the companies that we, uh, we sent the scorecard to, our, our uh, response rate has been about 80% for the last two years. So relatively speaking, we think that's, that's pretty good. Uh, and uh, it's been pretty consistent across the board and across industries and so forth, and also across regions. So we feel pretty we feel pretty good about that. As far as uh, consequences are concerned, uh, we, I'm not aware of any situations where we've actually stopped doing business with somebody. Uh, the first year that we sent the card out, we basically said we're just getting started, so there won't be any consequences. So let's get started. Uh, last year we said, okay, now it's going to start counting. And, uh, and so when the scores came in, uh, you know, it did penalize some of our um, external business partners. Uh, our sustainability uh, number feeds into what we call our supplier performance management system, which is uh, consists of about 20, 24 factors or so uh, of value factors that we use in terms of deciding, you know, you know, supplier awards and performance, et cetera, et cetera. So it feeds into that and is part of the total value equation. And uh, at this point in time, I'm not aware of any situations where we've had to actually stop. When we see the opportunity areas, though, our supplier relationship owners are expected to work one-on-one -on -one with the external business partners for improvement and drive improvement in all of those areas. And sustainability is one of those areas because it is kind of focused on separately and then integrated into, into the system. But the response rate has been good. Uh, I think that we're learning a lot. Uh, no consequences yet, but I think that uh, you know down the road as we continue to look and, our, and consolidate our supply base, this will become one of the key factors that is going to become more and more important as, in terms of the total value equation that will be used in assessing you know what we're doing and who we're going to do business with. And I would just say, um, for HP, we have a formal escalation path. So we have two different types of nonconformances. So when the when the audits come back and we have information from our suppliers, it's either a minor nonconformance or a major nonconformance. If it's a minor nonconformance, then we go along the path of, of you know, working usually collaboratively um, to fix it. And usually those don't really escalate um, too much for a major nonconformance. 
that's where something that is, uh, you know, an incredibly serious issue or reaches a certain ban level in escalation, um, we kind of move them into an initial re-audit phase where they have to be re-audited. If they don't take action within certain days, we go back in and double check. Uh, then at times that can be extended one more period if they still haven't fixed everything. If they, and it continues along those lines till we hit that point of, at this point, it's clear this isn't being fixed and we need to consider pulling out. So um, it's a formal process at the company and, and all those phases are built in. Let me, let me check something here because I mean, there are two phases that I have responsibility for. One is the environmental piece in terms of our supply chain, and another one is the social responsibility. So on the social responsibility side, our process works very similar to Ellen's. Uh, and we're a lot more deliberate in that area uh, because it's so important from our, what we call our purpose, value, and principle standpoint. So if we have problems with any of our external business partners, it goes through a process very similar. And I am aware of situations because I was involved directly in a couple where if uh, a company is not performing or improving and progressing the way we expect, yes, we have uh, uh, terminated our business relationship in those situations. So uh, social sustainability and, and, environmental, and, and environmental sustainability, we operate them as kind of separate programs to some extent, but uh, overall they'll be brought together at a higher level in the company. Okay, okay I promised this gentleman up here that we were going to take his question. We got a, a microphone. We've got just a couple more minutes. We'll probably do one more question after Bill's question. Gil Fred, Natural Logic and Open Data Registry. Um, this question is for I, well, for all of you, but more for Woody and uh, Ellen, because you spoke because you spoke to this. Um, uh, you talked about the challenge of gathering data, of managing it, but especially of sharing data. What needs to happen for it to be more valuable to share data than to hoard data? What would need to happen for that to shift? Sorry, could you just say what, what to share to versus? What would need to happen for it to be more valuable to share data between competitors than to, than to focus on the confidentiality? Um, good question. So, and I know HP has already been there because you did the supplier code of conduct together with IBM and Dell as yes. something that was pre-competitive collaboration instead yeah. of a competitive advantage kind of play. Right, but a, a good story, um, this happened right when I joined HP. Uh, we were debating whether to release our supplier list. This happened a couple years ago. And internally, you know, the, the Global Citizenship Council was really for it. The rest of the company was really against it. Um, you know, there, were, there was this, this internal dialogue of, wow, once we release who our suppliers are, what are our competitors going to do? This is like incredibly confidential information. How could we do this? Well, when we stepped back, we started thinking about how can we up-level the conversation. And um, we brought in Nike to uh, an internal confidential stakeholder meeting. Um, they, had, they had actually released their supplier list, um, I think the year before. And they came in and told the story of how they got it done and what were the repercussions. And uh, it was a very lively discussion. Um, and, uh, and then after hearing Nike's story and how you know, the fear was so high right before they did it, and then when they did it, it was fine. There weren't any major uproars. They, you know, trade secrets weren't out, and um, competitors didn't pounce. Uh, you know, our, our internal executive team listened to that story. Um, Nike left the building. We continued to talk about it for another couple hours. The decision was made, and then the next month we did it. Um, so I think... There's a culture of fear around some of that data and a true understanding of what really should be confidential and what shouldn't. Um, 
you know, when you look at GRI and some of the requirements that they have and that they're pushing for now with G4, that's a whole other level of discussion of, wow, if you're going to be in accordance with GRI or not in accordance for the new G4 guidelines, we don't want to be not in accordance. Well, to be in accordance, we have to start communicating even more data that we're not communicating now, and we think some of that should be confidential. Well, again, it's the same type of discussion. Is that, is that just fear? Is that really real? Are, what are the real risks? So I would say, you know, um, we've been able to learn a lot from other companies where they've been able to uh, cross those barriers, and we're going to continue to reach out and find examples where, where you can cross, cross that threshold. Stage manager, can we do one more? Or, no. There is one more based on microphone proximity here. You've been very patient. No? We got a microphone up here? Okay. All right. So it's a battle, battle of the microphones. Okay. Um, last question for, uh, for Woodrow. Uh, Andrew Winston, I'm a sustainability consultant and writer. Um, you mentioned quickly before that when you put this out that you started asking suppliers for data at the product level. Um, when this came out a couple years ago, that was kind of a big deal, I think, because that's, to me, kind of cutting edge and where we want to head, right? Where it's really easy to do LCAs because you just, everybody along the chain has product level data. You also, at the time, asked for partners, I think, for your suppliers to propose ideas, innovations. Can you, kind of quickly, can you provide any data on, you said before, some could provide product level. How many? Where are we on that um, level where, where companies can provide product level data and have any provided kind of good ideas and innovations that you've rolled out? across the company in the last year? Uh, a couple of things real fast. I know we're tight on time. Uh, as far as uh, the, the, the percentage of companies that can provide product levels, PNG-specific product level, about 10% of the companies that, uh, that uh, have been able to provide us uh, information to that level, about 10%, uh, and, um, you know, got work to do there, obviously. That's where we want to go. We like to get it up to 100%, so there's a lot of, lot of work to do there. And then as far as, what was the second question? Uh, Innovations. Innovation. Oh, about, uh, I would say about 30, 30%, 35% of the companies that uh, responded offered uh, sustainable innovation ideas for us. Well, I'd like to thank the panel uh, for their comments and remarks, and they'll be here you know, most of the rest of the day, I think, for additional discussion. Get more audio like this and join the Sustainable Brands community at sustainablebrands.com.